This is Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5 and going through verse 13. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. This is the Word of God for the people of God. God. Amen. You may be seated. Today's text contains two imperatives, to will and to act, which we have on the screen for you there, or to will and to do. And to break that down a little more to what those phrases mean, the word will also means to delight in. And the word translated to do or to act is translated or understood as to be effective in. So, to say that another way, God is the one who works in you to help you delight in and to be effective in doing His good pleasure. God makes it happen. Paul says we have some letting to do today. In verse 5, he even says it this way, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let it happen. Now, that mind which was in Christ Jesus is the one that said He is one in spirituality with the Father, but He's going to humble Himself and become like us. To humble Himself is to have the mind of Christ. But why did He do that? To show us the love of the Father. This is why Christ humbled Himself. And to also redeem us from damnation. And what we see here is that Christ who loved us humbled Himself. It says that in verse number 8. And we hear there the word humble to tell us that humility is the key to love. Humility. Now I'm going to share something with you to to help you understand why we're going where we're going today. And that is this. In any good program that you want to grow and change, the end result should be that you become more loving. More charitable, if you will. In a 12-step program, the last step is the goal. Not the first one, not the second or third, 
but the last one with all of the others coming before it. Why? Because a lot of people think that people go to AA or recovery meetings to stop doing something. That's not the goal of it. Not at all. The goal is the 12th step, which says we do this for others now. We carry the message everywhere we go and live this way all the days of our life. The goal isn't to stop, it's to start being a loving, giving person. Some people would say you become a part of uh, the productive part of society, if you will. But I see it differently. I see it that that's an act of love that God creates through doing things His way. The truth is, if we're not loving others, we're not living a faith in Christ. Do you agree with me? I want to argue with that, so I'm going to say it again so I can hear it. If we, you or I are not loving others, we are not living a faith in Christ. It is the key signature note of a Christian. They are known by how much they love one another. That's a scriptural quote. You can look it up later in 1 John. If that happens and we say, well, you know, I just had a tough day. The world would say, that's right. That's right, because your love is self-generated. The world disagrees that we can love without Jesus. That's what they say. You don't need to have a relationship with Jesus to love. But you cannot love without the Holy Spirit. You can do things and act things and feel things, but the true love that God is only comes from God. True love, godly love, is not self-generated. What the world calls love isn't. That's the simplest way I know to say it. The world doesn't understand godly love and it cannot practice it because it's a spiritual thing. What we read in Scripture is that God created us in His image. Genesis tells us that in the beginning. Toward the end of the book, it says His image is love. We all think, well, God must have fingers and toes and arms and a head and blonde hair, (laughs) turning silver, platinum, whatever color. But no, God's image is love. God is spirit, remember. He's not flesh. So when He creates you and recreates you, He's establishing love inside of you. Anything that is not love in word, thought, or deed is not from God in our lives and needs purged. Anything that we're not doing out of love. It doesn't make sense anyway because it's contrary to acting according to the will of God. If we want to do God's will, we will love regardless. Not we must, we will. God enables us to do it. When we don't do it, it feels weird. Whereas the world will say, you don't have to love everybody all the time. God would say, you love one another. Regardless. There are ways to express it that are healthier. But to desire the cleansing of the things that are not of God that keep us from loving requires a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our best efforts will fail sooner or later. There is no room in love to be critical, to be unforgiving, or to avoid somebody. 
to avoid an opportunity to love when God presents it. Love embraces humility of yourself. Now, let me say that because that's a pretty heady sentence. When I say love embraces the humility of self, it means that love desires to be humble and serve out of graciousness. That you don't want to be exalted and puffed up when you love, but you do it because you love. Because you want to serve. That's what I mean by that. And and I think you'll understand that as we go along, what that humility looks like. But humility, as it says in the mind of Christ, humbled Himself, it's a core requirement. It's not something you can go, well, I don't know if I want to be humble before others or God. I just don't know that you know people take advantage. God might use me. I might go places I don't want to go. Humility of self says, okay, God, your way, not mine. That's all it means. Your way, God, not mine. Your will, not mine. We say in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done. We don't say anything about our will in that prayer, do we? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we have difficulty with humbling ourselves or loving others, we have a spiritual misalignment. I promise you there are situations where we all have a spiritual misalignment. Last three weeks I've been talking about those spiritual misalignments that I had and that we all struggle with in one form or another. Today I'm going to invite you to ask God to end your spiritual misalignments. This scripture that we're reading, it not only says to have the mind of Christ, it says something that we kind of read real quick. It says that He took the form of a bondservant. Or shall we say, a slave. Jesus took the form of a slave. But Jesus didn't take the form of a slave where He was forced into service. He chose it. He chose it out of love for the Father. And so since He was, we are asked and called to be slaves. Is that a reasonable thing? Okay, how many have ever said, nobody's going to tell me what to do? I hate it when people tell me what to do. I can't stand it. It drives me crazy. I'll do anything you want as long as you don't ask me to. Don't tell me what to do. I used to say that a lot. I'm going to have to stop now because I still say it. No faithless, sane person desires to be under bondage. For freedom crisis set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Slavery to sin. That bondages you. Slavery to Christ sets you free. It's an oxymoron. Doesn't make sense. It's two different things that sound like a slave can't be free. But the only freedom is in Jesus Christ when you are enslaved to Him. Because it's not a kind of slavery where He drives you. He doesn't say to you, if you're not good, I'll I'll whip you. If your slavehood has caused stripes and pain in your life, it's probably not from Jesus Christ. No, As I said, no faithless, sane person wants to be in bondage. There is no love in, in terms of how they see that. 
Jesus kindles a desire in us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be connected so much to Him that we want to do whatever He says. It's not because we have to. It's because we get to. You mean He wants me? He asked me to do that? I'm honored! Not, oh, you mean I gotta go love them people? Jesus wants me to? Yeah, I know, but Jesus can ask somebody else. You ever heard that? (laughs) I think people have heard that before. Well, let me ask you, do you know what it looks like when somebody lives out the faith and love of Jesus Christ? Have you ever seen it? When their identity becomes so intertwined with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that you don't know where they stop and Jesus begins. If you've seen people like that, they are powerhouses of love. And they're not going, oh, I wish I didn't have to do this. They're going, God has included me. I'm so thankful. I met someone a long time ago who fit that description. Her story sticks with me through to this day. Her name was Hester. Hester. And if you don't know or have never heard the name Hester before, it's probably because it got uh, out of circulation as a given name a long time ago as a first name. But this was her first name. Hester was 104 years old. Worked, uh, shall we say, or lived at a retirement center in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I was working as a chaplain. And Hester would always come to the cafeteria, still able to walk, talk, do all her functions, just fully capable of engaging on all levels. And she would hug everybody in the cafeteria where they would come to gather at the retirement center. And then whenever she saw people, she would see them, she would pray with them, and she seemed spry for her age. People would see her and they would light up because they knew she loved them. Well, one day, Hester fell and broke her hip. 104 years old, broken head. The doctor comes in and says, we're going to perform surgery, and your recovery is going to take weeks, if not months, at your age, maybe never. And she said, well, that just won't work. I've got to be out there loving them people, and God's not going to keep me in this bed. I've got to love people. She has the surgery. Three days later, a nurse comes in where I was speaking with her and talking about how she was doing. And the nurse says, I've I've got to turn her and change her bedding. Could you excuse us? And I said, okay, I'll step out of the room. So I stepped outside the room and waited for the nurse to finish. About ten minutes later, the nurse walks out in tears. And I said, what's wrong? What happened to Hester? She said, nothing. She said, that 104-year-old woman in that bed has more love and strength than I do, and I'm much younger. And she said, she's such a blessing. I didn't know what happened. She went on down the hall. I walked in that, and I walked into the room, and I said, Hester, what did you do? She said, well, she's come to reach over me, and, you know, to flip me, and I, I couldn't help it. I had to hug her. And I hugged her and I felt the Lord say, pray for her. So I prayed for her. And it felt like she was having some struggles with her relationship and money and family. And so I spoke those things over her that God was going to be with her. I was just loving on her, that's all. 
And I said, but she's crying. She says, yeah. She said, how did you know? And she said, because I love God. He loves you. Just use me to do it. Amazing. 104 years old. Well, I'm saying, I can't do anything for Jesus. I got two arms. I got a phone. You can do a lot. You can do a lot with very little. Three weeks later, Hester comes on a walker and then sits down in a wheelchair and rolls herself into the cafeteria. People aren't expecting this, obviously. And the whole place bursts into delight. It's like a long-lost friend and everybody sees her at the same time. She says, I told you you're not going to keep me down. I've got to love people. I'm a lover. A lot of times the word lover gets a bad connotation, but in hers it shows us what Jesus Christ is asking us to do. To be a lover. It's what God inspires and causes us to do without wondering. Gee, I wonder if they'll be mad that I prayed. I wonder if they even want me to. I wonder if they even believe. She didn't care. She just loved them with God's love. God loves you regardless of whether you like it or not. He's not concerned whether you're going to accept His Son when He sent Him to die on the cross. He figured most people would reject Him. Even his best friends did. So you know, God's not concerned about, am I going to offend you by loving you? I would rather offend someone by loving them than by not. If that makes any sense, then you know why Hester said she's a lover and her story still speaks to my heart about 25 years later. God has called us to love. He didn't ask us to judge one another, whether they're worthy of it or not. He only asked us to help them. If we see somebody who doesn't know how to live out the Gospels, probably because they don't know how. Never been introduced to Jesus. You can be the one who does it. If you see someone acting or dressing or living in a discord with what you think is proper for a believer and a respectful person, it is the Holy Spirit nudging you to engage them to engage their life where they live, love them where they are, and be there for them to help them see a better way. It's not to say, well, that person ought to get a better way of living. What are they doing around here? It's not about that. If you see something out of line, it's because God showed you, so you would change it. God showed you, so you would do something. If you see that. He's not showing you to say to other people, look, look, this person doesn't, you don't know how to bathe or dress. Doesn't, doesn't ask us to do that at all. He said, I showed you that. You need to help them. That's the Holy Spirit, not the critical spirit, telling you this. What you do with it is on you. But God's showing you is God's nudge. A lot of folks don't see it that way, but that's how I see things. If God shows you something that's not right, It's your job to engage. Why else would you see it? Why else would God allow you the privilege to see that person in their failures and brokenness? To see if you have a compassionate heart. Let me tell you how this works, alright? When I was um, living in Mississippi, that's how we say it down there, Mississippi, we we leave out the second is, we left out a lot of syllables down there. But I was living in Mississippi, and my sons were still young, living in Illinois with their mother. And so, every so often I go up there, 
and pick them up. We go camp and do stuff together and have a great time. Usually we didn't talk a whole lot until the days got closer. Then they wanted to know, how long, Dad? How long? How long? And then when the day came, and I drove the five and a half, six hours to get them, I noticed every time that I went to get them, they were outside playing. Oh, they love their video games. But every time I came to get them, they were outside doing something near where they could see down the road. And as soon as they knew the time was getting closer, and they saw my van pulling down the road, they would run from one side of the yard to the other as fast as they could get to where I was at. They would run full speed, almost falling over each other to see who would get to me first to get the first hug. That run right there is a love run. Do you know what I mean by that? I, I miss those days when my kids did that. Nowadays, I think they run the other way, it seems like. You know? <laughs> and I go, oh, I'm so glad to see They go, oh, you're back. <laughs> wonder, wonder what he wants. But, but I pictured now, looking back, they're outside with anticipation and expectation for what's about to happen. Because they know we're going to go do something fun. I have a recording. I, I didn't, I'm not playing it for you this morning, but one time we were going to Walmart. They were so happy, they sang, Walmart, Walmart, we're going to Walmart, Walmart. Just a song called Walmart. If we, if we saw, we were going to get pizza, they'd go, pizza, pizza. And they would sing. They were so happy. Did I make them sing? No. Could they sing well? No. Did it delight my heart? Absolutely. Of course it did. It still does when I hear it. I remember it so well. You know, and so their expectation grows, and the sooner and closer that I was getting, the more they would go, wonder, wonder if he's here yet, wonder how far away, and they're talking to each other. Then the moment comes, and that burst of energy, there he is! Smiles of welcome, together again. <laughs> they even sang one one time, I was trying to find it for you, where they're singing, together again, we're so happy, 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 we're together again. Like that, and they're they're so young, yet innocent, yet so pure. That joy, that joy is unforced love that comes directly from the heart of God through a child to its parent. That unforced love that is childlike in nature is the same love Jesus is talking about when he says, We must become as a child to enter the kingdom of God. To have that same joy for our Heavenly Father. Hmm. So the story of the prodigal son has someone running as well. Do you, do you know it? I have it on the screen. It's a story of the prodigal son where the younger son asks his father for his share of the inheritance. I'm going to give you some backstory on this that isn't in there, but can be clearly inferred from the text. This boy is lazy. (laughs) He is lazy. He's young. He doesn't want to work. He sees his father as a portion and a place to get money so he can go do what he wants the way he wants. And he's heard all the story about all the things people do everywhere, but there where his dad is. And so he wants his part of the inheritance so he can go do it. And so... That's what he goes off to do. Now he's got an older brother. We learn this a little bit later. 
The older brother is a worker. He's a Martha. He's out in the field all the time doing things to help the father build his kingdom. He's working, working, working. And so, when he sees his younger brother who's lazy take his father's hard work and go spend it foolishly, he's a little upset. Yeah. A little bit. More than a little bit, yeah, in the story. As a matter of fact, but we don't hear this until later, but what happens in the story is that son who's younger goes and attaches himself to prodigal living is what they call it in a foreign land. And, and, and he spends it, he would say this, I spent most of my money on wine, women, and music, and the rest I wasted. That's what he would say. But what I would say is he wasted it all. And when all the money ran out, the friends were gone, the party was over, and he tried to find work, but a great famine occurred in that land. He could find no work. And finally, being a self-disrespecting young soul, he began to feed pigs. That's his job. And he fed the pigs corn husks. He was so hungry that the, what the pigs were eating looked good. Now, he wanted that, but nobody gave him anything. <laughs> I love this story. He says, nobody gave me anything. Why does anybody give You ever think he might be a little bit needy? His father gave him. He had all this money when he didn't have any money. Now nobody's giving me anything. What's wrong with people? They're not giving me things. <laughs> you ever met someone like that who's just a sponge? You got this kid, okay? He's a sponge. <laughs> I think his father knew that. His brother did. And everybody around him probably finally figured out he was just a sponge, just sucking resources until you were bone dry. <laughs> And when you were out of resources, he'd go to someone else and work on them. And in the midst of this, though, he, he doesn't have anything to eat. He's so hungry, he says, I know what I'll do. Since I can't go back as a son, I'll go to my father and be a slave. A slave? A slave? Didn't we hear that word earlier? I'm going to go back and be a slave, one of his servants, and tell him I'm not worthy to be his son anymore, which he was not. And tell him to be as a hired servant so he'll have food. He knows what a slave does. He's willing to accept that role as long as it's in his father's house. As long as it's in my father's house, I accept being a slave. Nowhere else. Nowhere else will I be in bondage. Amen? And so he goes. Now, this, the history tells us, and the cultural expectation back then, is because the son sold off the father's property, he disgraced his father. He dishonored him. Which means, he says, I'm no longer a part of your family. Which is, according to their custom, a shameful thing to do. But it's more than that. If that son were to come back to that father... He would be disgracing the father and therefore worthy of being stoned. So if he comes back to the father, he's going to be stoned. Killed. And it's the obligation of the community to look for him 
And if they sin before the Father does, to save the Father the pain of having to put it up to himself. Yet this son says, well, I know all that, but I'm still going back to my father. I'm going to ask him to treat me as a servant. I won't be a son. I'll just be a servant. At least I'll have something to eat. That's all it's about now when, when you give up. It's about just surviving. Sometimes we get there, don't we? We don't realize how much God has for us. We're just trying to survive. And I've been there, and some of us have been too. Some of us are there spiritually, just trying to survive. It's what that emotional entanglement we were talking about a couple Sundays ago in the anxious thoughts, just trying to survive our own feelings and thoughts. Well, the father, in the video that I have, the father is writing a diary, a letter, trying to send them to his son, but they all get sent back. And every day he sets out an extra place at the table for him. And balloons and a welcome home sign. And every day for three years the son doesn't come home. Three years. In this story, we don't know how long the son's been along the way off. But when the father sees the son. I don't know if you've ever read this story in the way that it is. But listen to verse 20 in Luke 15. It says, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. It says when he was a great way off, his father saw him. Let me tell you what this father was doing. To be able to see his son before the community. That he would make a large circle and spend his days walking farther than the community, each direction to see where his son might be if he was coming home. And every day he had to do that to save his son's life if he would come home. Every day he walked out, miles if you will, just to see if his son was coming home. And it says, when his son was coming home, his father saw him from a great distance. What that means is his father was nowhere near home. That his father went looking for the son in areas where the community did not reach so he could save his life if he ever perchance did come home. And on this particular day, he sees the son a long way away and he runs. Um, I'm 53, if you didn't know, I don't run. I try, but I make it a few feet and I'm tired. It says he saw his son a long way away, a quarter mile or more, and he ran the entire distance to him. Old men can't do that. This man did because of the love that compelled him. He was happy to see him. And the son goes through his spiel. I'm a bad boy. I don't deserve to be your son. Just make me a servant. And the father says, nonsense. Nonsense. You're my son and you always will be no matter what you do. You can't stop being my son just because you're an idiot. <laughs> but you're smart enough to come home to know who loves you. 
who really cares about you. And so, the Father, like my sons running to me, had anticipation and expectation, waiting daily for his son to come home. And he had no knowledge of when. But my sons did. They didn't play outside any day but the day. And so I see uh, them knowing I was coming. God is like that with us. He runs with tear-filled eyes. He says, I've missed you. Welcome home. Now the older son out in the field rejects the father's graciousness toward his son. He even says, when this son of yours... I don't know if you all know this, but parents who have children together don't always have them together. Sometimes it's, this is your daughter did this. That's your son that did it. What's your son too? No, not today. He's acting like your son today. You ever heard that before? We always say it's, it's, the, it's your fault. <laughs> That our son is this way, so it's your son now. When he's good, he's my son. When he's bad, he's yours. Oh, y'all don't know that, do you? (laughs) So the older son rejects the father's graciousness that way because he's a worker and his brother's not. He judges him for being lazy and wasting his father's wealth. What this son who's out in the field, doesn't realize is he does not have to work for his father's love. He doesn't have to work for it. He doesn't have to earn it. Because he even says, Father, I've worked. I've worked. You read it there, don't you? I've worked all these years and you've never done anything for me. But this lazy son of yours comes, you throw him a party. But I've worked for you and you've done nothing for me. And the father says, you don't have to work for it. Just ask. If you would have asked, I would have done anything. After all, he says to the older son, all that I have is yours. It's yours already. You're my son. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? I would run to you. But you're here with me. To find you, i got to find you in the field working rather than celebrating because you think you still don't belong to me. It was right, he says to him, that we celebrate. The younger son had already claimed his portion of the inheritance. The older son says, well, whatever the son gets now from dad, it comes out of my pocket. (laughs) The youngest son was lazy. But did it make him not his father's son? No. No. What if he couldn't afford nice clothes? To make him not his father's son? Nope. No, it does not. What if he doesn't have good hygiene after being five years or however long in the pig fields? Does that make him not his father's son if he smells bad? No. What if he has bad manners? Is he going to reject him because he's got bad manners? Still his son, isn't it? What if he doesn't respect himself or others? Ooh, I've got to think about that one. I know some people aren't respectful. They're still the father's child. What about people who are troubled with anger? Like the older son. Is he still his father's son? Well, let's see. What if he's a molester? Is he still his father's son? 
And some of you are going, well, he disowned by doing that. Let me tell you something. The grace of Jesus Christ and forgiveness covers all sin. He is still his father's son. What about people with different sexual views? People who are hungry or homeless or addicted or thieves and steal and rob or liars. Are they still the child of their father? All those things they do cannot stop the relationship because it's based on the father, not the son. It's based on the father, not the daughter. He is love. There is no shadow of turning with Him. In Him is light and light alone. And God is at work in you and in me to will and to do what He's trying to do. But we keep holding back because it hurts or we've been disappointed or rejected or our emotions or our thoughts get entangled. We're avoiding rather than engaging God at His level. We quench the Holy Spirit. Believers do what needs done in the name of Jesus. No excuses there. And I would love to see us as a church stand strong, arm in arm together, taking on broken lives, destroyed families, drug addictions, the cast out from society, the poor and the wretched. There are people I've worked with in recovery. I just want to pull out my hair and say, I don't know how to help you. Just I'm done, you know. And God keeps going, I'm not done with them. Why are you? Are you better than me? That you know how to judge that person? No, God. I am not better than you. I do not know how to judge them the way you do. And He said, then quit. And just love them. Sometimes love from the flesh is hard. But when God is in you, it's natural. Because God is doing the willing and the doing. I would love to see us so in love with Jesus as a church and as individuals that we run full smile to the world's cast-offs to see how we can help them start over again. If the older son knew, this is what's so sad. If the older son knew his father's love, he would have run for his brother too. Mm-hmm. But he gave up on it. Because he worked for his favor and saw that that's the only way to get it. But it's not true. He already had it before he did its thing. Love is no imposition when you love. It's something you do because you love. Just like your Father in heaven did for you. Have you experienced God's running to you? Today you can. He's been waiting all this time for you to come home. Do you desire to live the gospel of Jesus Christ more than anything else? Do you want to desire it? If love and loving others is not your greatest joy, then the next voice should be the humility, the humble heart cry from your own mouth saying, Father God, I want to please you in all I do. 
Please remove anything in me that's not of You. I bind myself to You, Lord Jesus. Help me, Holy Spirit, to love as my Father God loves. Myself seeking selfish ways end today as I run towards You, Holy Father. Run to me as I seek You. Show me how it feels to be found. And then use me to find others. Amen. That this mind was in Christ being you. He humbled himself. Even to death on a cross. I see nobody here. Nobody here getting even close to a Calvary. We got a ways to go. It's uh, 